As we consider the significance of Good Friday, we are always mindful of the fact that we're doing so from God's revelation. Uh, the truth that God reveals to us points our attention constantly to the Son. And as we look to the Son, we see the one who was crucified for our sins. And as we come to the Scriptures, we see uh, the revelation that God gives us so we can savingly know the significance of what Jesus has accomplished. And so we're going to uh, consider uh, for just a few minutes here tonight uh, some significance around Good Friday taken from verse 34 of chapter 23, which Julie read for us when we began, uh, where we have Jesus praying on the cross and he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, this is, this is such an extraordinary prayer from Christ. It is helpful just to remind ourselves of the circumstances leading up to what's happening here. Um, so it's good to remember that in Luke's gospel, uh, Luke has been describing for us uh, events leading up to this point that have been taken, taking place during uh, Passover week in Jerusalem. Uh, Passover is the Jewish festival in which the Jewish people recall the events surrounding their exodus from Egypt. And during Passover week, the population of Jerusalem would swell enormously. And as this particular Passover week began, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with the crowds uh, praising him. As, as he rode into town, the people were calling out the words of Psalm 118 to him. Uh, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, that was the, the commendation that Jesus received as he entered Jerusalem on the prior Sunday. His fame had grown by this time throughout all the land and people heralded him as the Messiah, as the promised one from God. Uh, but things didn't remain so happy for very long. The religious leaders were very upset that Jesus would enter Jerusalem in such a messianic manner. Of course, the leaders of the day rejected the fact that Jesus was the promised one from God, sent to be the king of his people, sent to save us. So by Monday, uh, the leaders were, were growing in their deep disdain for Jesus. Monday, Jesus had been in the temple, running out those who were using the temple precinct uh, for their own financial profit. And then on Tuesday, the religious leaders confront Jesus with some questions, uh, seeking to entrap him. But Jesus is too wise, and he escapes their theological traps. Uh, so on Wednesday, these same leaders meet up to design a plot to kill Jesus. And then on Thursday, Jesus and the disciples, they share in the Passover meal together. And it's at that meal that Jesus speaks again about uh, his coming death. And then it's during that meal that, Jesus, that Judas leaves to betray Jesus. And it's also during that me meal that Peter, uh, he says that he'll never deny Jesus. And then by the end of Thursday and into early Friday morning, we find Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he's sweating drops of blood. He's praying to the Father, anticipating the cross, saying, If you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In the garden, the weight of the woeful world's sin is growing heavy upon Jesus' shoulders. And then very early on Good Friday morning, Judas shows up in the garden while Jesus is praying, and he shows up with a military escort and betrays Jesus with a kiss. And so at that time, Jesus is arrested, he's taken into custody, and he stands before the high priest and the religious authorities, and they condemn Jesus. They beat Jesus, uh, they say he's not who he says he is, and he deserves death for claiming to be the promised one from God. Uh, during that same time, out in the courtyard, Peter, who promised to be a rock, he denies Jesus three times. Then the religious leaders, because they don't have the political authority to kill Jesus, the Jews are under Roman rule, so because they don't have the political authority to actually condemn Jesus to death, 
they send him to Pilate, who's the regional Roman governor. Pilate questions Jesus, but he can't find any fault with Jesus. So Pilate then sends him over to Herod when he finds out that Jesus has a connection to Herod's jurisdiction of Galilee. Herod just happens to be in Jerusalem at the time. And Herod asks Jesus questions, uh, but we're told Jesus has nothing to say to Herod. He has nothing to say to him. Jesus gives him no response. We know it's a dark day for a dark heart when the Savior of the world has no words for you. Uh, so Herod and his soldiers mock Jesus and then just send him back to Pilate. Pilate finally gives in to the pressure of the religious leaders in the crowd. And while Pilate acknowledges Jesus' Jesus's complete and total innocence, he says, in this man I find no wrong, still he condemns Jesus to death. Uh, so this is getting nearer to midday on Friday and Jesus is beaten again. This is when the crown of thorns is placed on his head and he's marched off to a place called Cranion in Greek and Aramaic, which was the common language of the time. The name of the location is Golgotha. In Latin, the name of the place is Calvary. Each of these names translates our English word skull. So for his crucifixion, Jesus is led to a place called the skull, an apt name for a place of execution. And here at the hill called Skull, Jesus is crucified. He's nailed to the cross, uh, one criminal on his right, one criminal on his left. Uh, one scholar commenting on the Roman cross as a tool of execution, he makes this statement. He says, every totalitarian regime needs a terror apparatus. And the crucifixion was Rome's. Every totalitarian regime needs a terror apparatus. And the crucifixion was Rome's. Uh, crucifixion was a death that was publicly humiliating for many reasons. It was a death that was slow and excruciatingly painful. The, the practice itself was designed to inspire terror in the hearts of the public. And it's interesting to note that Luke, along with actually all the other gospel writers, uh, Luke describes the actual crucifixion of Jesus in a manner of just a few words. It's very brief. Uh, he tells us that they came to the place, they crucified him with one criminal on his right and one on his left, and then some place bets for Jesus' clothes. It's a brief description that's given there. And actually, none of the gospel writers go into the grotesque details of the cross. They simply state the plain reality. Uh, if I were to say the name Auschwitz to you, uh, you probably don't need further explanation in order for the horrors of what that name means to come to mind. If I just say the name Auschwitz. And so it was in the first century, a crucifixion depicted publicly an acknowledged horror. And no more details were needed. The cross was just brutality and everybody knew it. And as we even reflect on that this evening, the, the cross is something that can become so familiar to us, can't it? The, the cross itself can become uh, no more than a logo to us now. Uh, but the reality is that crucifixion on a Roman cross was something so debased, so terrorizing, that the gospel writers are reverentially brief in their description. No need for more words. The horrors of the cross was known all too well. And while the description of the crucifixion is brief, Luke is absolutely clear about all the facts around it. And those facts include the truth that all through the account of the week leading up to and including Good Friday, we have many different responses to Jesus the Messiah. We have praise at first, um, but then uh, the responses reflect deeper and deeper darkness as the week goes on. Some will despise Jesus, some betray Jesus, some beat Jesus, some falsely accuse Jesus. And here he hangs mocked. He's even, he's even mocked by justly accused criminals who are on either side of him. He saved others, but he can't save himself, they all say. 
There are many responses leading up to Good Friday. And while, while all the responses are worthy of our consideration, really there's only one response above all the responses that matters most of all. And that is how Jesus responded on Good Friday. How did Jesus respond as he hung on the cross, mocked and tormented by those around him? He's been nailed to the cross. We know that he's condemned by the very same people. He's healed and taught and delivered. And now he hangs in this place of public humiliation and physical pain. And let's not forget the mighty agony that he was bearing under as the punishment of sin uh, was poured out upon him. As God's cup of wrath was poured out upon him as he suffered there. And what will Jesus's response be to all of this? Historians of the time tell us that the normal response of those on a cross was to cry out for vengeance. Criminals on a cross uh, were known for screaming threats at their executioners until all the breath was gone out of them. And we can identify with that to some degree, not least of all thinking of Jesus' own innocent status as he hangs there suffering, his mockers, his executioners right there before him. Wouldn't it seem so appropriate to us if Jesus responded to all this with, with yells that, that said things like, how dare you mock me? How dare you betray me after, you de- after I delivered you from, from demonic oppression? How dare you distance yourself from me after I've taught you the way of life? How dare you nail my hands after I've healed you? How dare you condemn me after, de- after Pilate declared me innocent? How dare you do these things? We could certainly identify with Jesus calling out in those ways. After all, if we're viewing all of this through our contemporary lens, one might even say it would be irresponsible for Jesus not to call down his offenders. The wrong must be called out and the offenders must be disgraced. Isn't that the program of our day? To our contemporary minds, that would seem so reasonable. Call out the wrongdoers. Disparage them. They deserve a derogatory response. But what does Jesus do? What's Jesus' response at the cross? Does he respond with cries of offense and vows of vengeance? No, he doesn't. Instead, everything is completely opposite of that. Jesus responds to the cross in a way that's not calling for the condemnation of wrongdoers, but instead his response is to offer a prayer for their pardon. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we hear that and and we're immediately struck by a kind of response that's almost more than our ears can bear. What kind of mercy is this? What kind of justice is this? Even that statement, they know not what they do, are all so ignorant that they're free of guilt in this gruesome unjust scene on a hill called the skull? We know they're not innocent. When Jesus says they know not what they do, he's not absolving everyone involved in his crucifixion. By the time we get into Acts, there's no doubt that those involved are guilty of crucifying the Lord of glory. Peter will say as much in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. When Jesus says they know not what they do, he's not absolving his executioners of guilt. He's simply stating that the crucifiers, sin-darkened hearts, don't comprehend the absolute depravity of their actions. Here hangs the very Son of God, and they're killing him. And instead of Jesus railing against them with words of eternal condemnation, he calls out from the cross to his Father in heaven and pleads that the Father would forgive them. He doesn't condemn them, he prays for their pardon. This this is Jesus' response to being crucified between two criminals at a place called the skull. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So how can this be? Where, where, Where is the justice in this? And as we ask that question, we find ourselves right at the center of the truly scandalous nature of the grace of Good Friday. The great scandal of grace on Good Friday is that those who deserve condemnation receive the opposite of what they deserve. 
they receive a request for their pardon. Father, forgive them. And then we also wonder, who is this them that Jesus has in mind? Father, forgive them. Right? Is Jesus praying for those who falsely accused him? Is he praying for, for the Roman soldiers who nailed his hands to the cross? Is he praying for the mockers who slander him? Who's he praying for here? Well, it seems that, that Luke wants to be sure we catch the unbound nature of Jesus' request. Father, forgive them. Certainly Jesus is praying for those who opposed him, but Jesus is praying for more than just the opposers and betrayers and soldiers and mockers who gathered at that place called the skull on that particular day. Because after all, this prayer of Christ, don't we need this prayer applied to us too? He's praying for us as well. Why does Jesus hang there on the cross? He hangs there on the cross by the hands of wicked men, no doubt. But in the most ultimate sense, he hangs there as he remains faithful to God the Father's will, offering the perfection of his own life as payment for the sins of all those who will trust in him. From the Roman soldier to Peter the denier to the thief crucified next to him all the way down to us as we gather this evening. Jesus didn't come to give us what we deserved. Jesus came to take what we deserve in our place. The death sentence that's rightly due us because we have said to our creator God that we reject you and we want to be in charge of ourselves. The death sentence for sin that is eternally appropriate given our cosmic treason was laid upon Jesus at the cross. And the response of Jesus to that is to plead for the forgiveness of the ones who's put him, of the people who've put him there. And he prays for the forgiveness of you and me as well. Jesus isn't bitter on the cross. He's not remorseful. He's not resentful. He's not vengeful. He's not spiteful. Left to myself, I can't even imagine a mindset that isn't all of those things. Jesus' response to the cross is to pray for the application of the very pardon that he's bleeding and dying to purchase. Forgive them. That's Jesus' response to Good Friday. So then the question has to be asked after that, what's ours? What's our response to Good Friday? Our response to the cross can be any number of things. Our response can be disregard. Our response can be unbelief. Our response can be disinterest. Our response can be to turn away from its gruesome reality. Our response can be to categorize the cross as a mere religious relic. None of those responses capture the desire of the Lord himself as he hangs there dying. Instead, our responses to the cross must be, Lord Jesus, apply your prayer of pardon to me. As the hymn goes, it was my sin that held him there. Right, Lord Jesus, I'm the mocker. Lord Jesus, I'm the betrayer. Lord Jesus, I'm the one full of falsehood. But Lord Jesus, you are the forgiver. Apply your cross to me. Take my burden of sin. Give me the gift of forgiveness that you bled and died to purchase. And the amazing thing is, is that as we turn to Christ, humbly acknowledging our total need of forgiveness that comes through him alone, as we do that, to quote the Apostle Paul from Colossians 2, the Lord forgives all our trespasses. Paul goes on to say, he erases the certificate of debt with its obligation that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away, Paul says, by nailing it to the cross. So in the death of Christ. My debt before God. Because of my sin before God. In the death of Christ. My debt died. It was cosmically paid off. In the death of Christ. For those trusting in Jesus. Your debt died. Because God the Father's answer. To God the Son's prayer. Was the application of forgiveness. To people like us. It began with a thief on the cross. It extended to those on Pentecost Sunday when they all respond to Peter's sermon, what must we do to be saved? 
and down through the ages for all who turn to Christ in saving faith. He applies that forgiving reality to them. And so we think on this. We, we set our minds to this. The debt of every wrong we've ever done cleared before God in the death of Christ. The, death of, the, the debt of every wrong we've ever done is clear. The penalty for every single sin is paid since past, present, and future. The inborn sinful inclination that is just so present in us, every sin and inclination toward, toward sin-covered uh, activities because of Jesus' response, uh, response to the cross was not ultimately uh, leaving us in a place of condemnation, but leaving us in a place of forgiveness. In Christ, we know that we're completely free. And so as Good Friday ends with, with a dark night, in a sense, it also ends with a night on which we praise the forgiving Christ who hung on Golgotha. We praise him, we look to him as the one in whom all our hope is sourced. He's the one who didn't begrudgingly come to die in our place. He's the one who, as the ultimate servant of God, came to willingly offer himself up in order that we could be reconciled to God forever. There's no other hope but Christ alone.